Hey, Gene, are you there? I'm here. Phil, are you there? Yeah. Hey, Big Gene, how you doing? Phil, what's going on, boy? Not how too much. Doing, yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. So you put those retired papers in, huh? <laughs> yeah, I finally did. Yes, I yep. Yeah. You know, I, I think for me, uh, what I think is great about, like, you guys being on the phone is I think when you look at this story and all the people that are online, all the people that I think, Gene, like, you've been telling your story for years. Phil has now decided to tell his story. I think there's probably a lot of people out there that could make a case or have in the, in the past that maybe you guys even never talked and how this story and the truth of, of what, you know, happened has kind of been twisted in all of these different ways. And, you know, what I think would be great would be for you guys to talk about, you know, how, your interactions and when you met and, and Phil, why it was important to you to talk to Gene and for people to understand when you went out and set out to do your your investigation, I can always remember you telling me, you know, I needed to go talk to Big Gene. I wanted to understand what he had been asked or shown or whatever. So maybe that's a good place to start is, you know, the story of how you guys met and, and what that meant. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I uh, I got Big Gene's phone number. I contacted him told him who I was, the reason I wanted to come out to New York um, and talk with him about the events that happened the night that uh, Biggie got shot. And Gene gave me the address. Uh, he was working the night that I, I showed up um, at his work with another agent that flew out uh, from L.A. with me. And uh, I just remember uh, when I first saw Gene, I'm like, okay, I now understand why they call him Big Gene. Um, and, you know, and, and, and trust me, uh, I not only tried to do whatever due diligence I could on, on who Gene was, but I think he did a good job when he first saw me was, you know, he wanted to make sure, you know, I was who I said I was and that I didn't have any ulterior motives and, you know, that I was there really to, to try to get to the truth of the matter of what took place that night. Um, the biggie was shot. And so myself and the other agent, um, we sat down um, at his uh, at his office there, and uh, and we talked, and it it seemed like after you know a little feeling out period of uh, on both of our parts that uh, you know we both understood you know we just want the truth to get out there, and uh, we talked for a while and seemed to hit it off pretty good, and uh, you know like I've said before. Um, I find Gene not only 100% credible, but he was very forthcoming. He was very truthful. And uh, I, I don't understand why there's these people out there that even dispute that I was the FBI agent that, that either uh, first opened up this case or I wasn't even uh, assigned to the case when a different agent went and interviewed Big Gene. Why people come up with these crazy narratives? Uh, I just, it, it's laughable. It's just, it's a joke. And, uh, like I said, I found Gene a hundred percent credible. Um, I corroborated a lot of the things that he said with not only other people that were, um, there at the scene, but, uh, um, you know, some other things that I was able to do. And, uh, I thought that was important. And Gene, 
with Phil coming out over the last, I'd say, you know, three or four months and finally telling his story, what has that meant for all of the time that you spent talking on your YouTube channel, doing interviews? What was your reaction when Phil, when you finally realized Phil was here and he was setting the record straight? Well, you know, sometimes our people don't believe that an individual like myself uh, could come out with as a witness and put everything on the line based on the powers that be. When Phil came to my office, you got to realize I kept his card. I kept every last one of the officers, even the LAPD officers, catching them. Uh, I kept their cards. So I didn't just pull Phil Carson's name out the air when I said years ago that he was the individual that came and I wouldn't say interrogated me, but, you know, he interviewed me. We did have to get to know each other because you have to understand, the LAPD told me they were coming back after I had seen that picture of me, Puff, and uh, the Muslim, uh, which we know as Amir Muhammad. They told me they were coming back, and I never heard nothing else from them at all. So me coming out here and giving the people, as a witness, the information that I saw, the things that I saw, the things that I heard, and Phil coming to collaborate and, 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 and say, yeah, me and Gene did have that conversation. Me and Gene did, did, did do that. That's coming from an FBI agent. He don't have no reason, no rhyme or reason to lie for me. He's there to get the information, to get the truth, no matter where it's lies. And for him to come out and 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 did the, I, to be totally honest, when I first heard, heard the dossier, yo, my heart dropped, and I was so out, yo, yo, I, I can't tell you how happy I was, man. And and I said that I'm gonna help push this, and I just hope some other people get on the bandwagon so it could get the notoriety that it needs, and then maybe, just maybe, uh, Big could get his justice. And you know. What I find interesting, Gene, is from the very first time that you've ever spoken about the events of that night, your story has never changed, you know? And, you know, I think a lot of people in your position would have done what you could, spoke what you could, and then realized and sat back and said, this is insurmountable. I, I, I can't keep talking about this because nothing's being done. Why did you decide for so many years to develop a platform to talk to people, to educate people, to tell people these stories? Why did you feel that that was important? Because when you don't tell the truth like Puffy did, he didn't tell the truth, that somewhat hurts the the authenticity of what we went through. And people can't learn from a lie. You understand? So I said to myself, until he tells the truth of what happened, what was told to him prior to going to the party, I'm going to stay on his neck because he's wrong. Anybody else who has to go through something like that or may go through something like that and they don't listen to their bodyguard, don't listen to the person who's doing their security and everything like that, it may just happen like that again. So. It was. I took it upon myself to take my hammer and chop at the Empire State Building, and 
if I got to just get a little bit at a time and one person know the truth, two people know the truth, we're going to be all right. And Phil, what what was your experience as it relates to getting information from Puffy or, or anyone in that regard? Did you end up interviewing him or not? What 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 was your stance there? Yeah. Um I actually had a lot of conversations with his attorneys saying, you know, this is the reason I want to talk to him and I might have some even information that I need to uh to provide to Puffy to give him a little bit of a, more of a background of what really transpired that evening. And I got some pushback at first, and then finally we were able to set it up. And I went and talked to Puff. And um, he was very nice, very cordial, didn't get much information out of him, I'll be honest with you. I could understand where he was coming from, but I didn't necessarily agree, just because from, from my research and the relationship that he had with Biggie, you know, one of his best friends and all that sort of stuff. He wasn't very forthcoming with information. And I think the reason why is, is at that time, you know, Puff was a mogul, but he was becoming even a bigger mogul. He had just not just in in all the different entertainment avenues that he was involved in, as well as the clothing line and everything like that. I think he realized that no matter what he said, he wasn't going to be able to bring Biggie back. And maybe he just felt that maybe the more he talked or if he actually told the truth or or what really happened and all that sort of stuff, that all that would do is put a um, a target on his back. Because I know after the shooting occurred, he kind of had to, you know, hide out or hole up for a while because, you know, he was in fear that, you know, maybe people were going to be coming after him, that his life would be in danger. And very much so. I uh, I can understand that because he was the intended target is the bottom line. And well, when I actually told him that, that, that definitely got his attention. But Phil, you, you, yeah. uh, people don't look at this, that Puff is responsible for the safety of his artists. And if he tells the truth that, you know, he was told that it was going to be a hit. He was told that some guys were going to kill them and he didn't do a due diligence to get enough security for his artists, then that makes him liable. Oh, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I right. 100% agree and, with you, Gene. Absolutely. And, and that, like I told people a thousand times, if I wouldn't have never took that DEA class, and they, and they taught us, you know, if you somebody, you know, you want to know if somebody following you, run three lights, take three rights. You know what I'm saying? Either or. You know what I'm saying? And I told our driver to run the next three lights. Well, gee, wow. you told me that. I mean, I, I trust me. I documented that. You you told me that, and that was one of the downfalls. Was you know you 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 guys ran that first light, and then I'm trying to think of who who was who was driving Biggie's car. It was his, was it uh, G Money G. Okay, yeah, it was great. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah, he and was, he, he didn't have any he didn't have any background in uh, executive protection or security, so he oh. sat at the light. And that created a sitting target, a stationary target for the shooter. Well, I was telling people, and they always say this wrong in every movie, they don't understand the car was parked at the corner. Right. It was no drive-by. What he did, was he, he, when, when Bigman stopped at the light, you know, he esked up from the parking space he had right there at the corner, took his shot, and then Kenny, our driver, when he heard the first shot, because Tone said, somebody pointing a gun at Big Now, I went to open my door, as I told you, 
and then we hear the first shot, bow. Then Kenny just guns the car. Then next thing you know, we hear, bat, 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 bat. Then he turns the corner, and he's gone. We get back in front of the car. Everybody is gone. You know what I'm saying? Big is the only one in the car. We wait till they come back, and Tone said, Gene, come on, come on, Gene. I hopped in our car that Kenny was driving, and we go after the guy. So my whole thing about it is, is that you're right. He didn't have any any protection. He he didn't have any. G didn't have any knowledge of of security, and that was whoever was responsible for big security, which was Paul Offord and that Inglewood cop. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Let so, me let me add something that that I think is important too, because there's some people out there that that apparently are trying to push a different narrative. Um, I'm looking at a copy of, of my interview with Eugene that was six, 17 years ago, okay? Everything that you just described right now that took place, detail by detail, is exactly what you told me 17 years ago. And why there are people out there that say that, uh, whatever, you, you changed your story or, or this and that. I'm sick of hearing that from other people. You have been 100% honest from the beginning. You've always told the truth. Uh, your story has never wavered. Everybody else that I talked to back then corroborated everything that you told me. And I don't understand why they're, well, I do understand why these people are trying to push a false narrative. Um, because they're just trying to stand behind their false story. But I don't understand why people would even spend two seconds listening or even acknowledging these false narratives while they're, why they try to say, oh, Big Gene isn't believable because he changed his story. I'm here to tell everybody you are believable, and I wish these other people that dispute that would just shut up and go away because that's getting tired and old. <laughs> they're not going to Seriously. No, that's they're not. They them, that's why they call them trolls. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a I have a uh, a question that I want some clarity on from both of your different perspectives, and it has to do with a particular photograph. I guess Gene that was shown to you, Phil. I, uh, obviously, we've talked so much, but I want to understand. There was a photograph, and in this photograph, Gene, as far as I understand it, you said to the LAPD, if you unblur this person's face in this photograph, that's who the shooter is. Is that correct? Talk me through the photo from your side, Gene, and then, Phil, I want to hear your perspective on it. Sure. All right. First and foremost, they wasn't trying to show me that photo. All right. What had actually happened was the tape that they were recording me on clicked off. So they had it under the cover, and they had photos and stuff like that under the cover. So now they're looking at each other like two buffoons because they're taping me without even letting me know that they were taping me. I had my lawyer in there, Eloise Nurse, and she said, you taping my client without our permission? And then the guy, he tried to explain to Eloise that, the reason they were doing it because they can't remember all the stuff that may be said may have been said in the uh in, in the interview. So when they go and move the cover, these pictures are under the cover. 
right? And when he moved to cover, when he moved to cover, I see the picture. It's me, Amir Muhammad, is Diddy. Uh, we're going to say the Muslim because I didn't know it was him at the time. Uh, the Muslim is Diddy right there in the photo. And I remember exactly what happened because Phil, you know, I thought he was trying to get me because he said, yo, did you have your gun on me? And then I said, yes. He said, uh, what happened? I said, I showed him my weapon, and he walked down the street in the opposite direction. You know what I'm saying? So now, LAPD, they wasn't trying to show me that picture. Then I seen the picture. I'm like, oh, shit. That's the guy right there. Because I remember Little C said a Muslim had killed Big when we was at the hospital. And I said, the blue suit, white shirt, blue bow tie, peanut looking head. And he was like, yeah, yeah, how you know, Gene? Paul Offer said that. Yo, Gene, how you know? I said, he walked up to Puff Car first. You understand? So, like, we're not going to mention his name, but the A1 super cop from L.A. Uh, said <laughs> that I was in some kind of pissing contest with him. didn't happen like that. He was coming close to my principal. He was coming close to my client. I showed him my, I lowered my gun from under my shirt. He looked at it and walked back in the opposite direction. You understand? When the LAPD, you know, when I seen that picture, I, I said, oh, shit, this the guy right here. And then they faked, the guy faked, everything was clear in the pictures. I was clear. Puff was clear. Everything was clear in the picture except his face. Now, anybody who took photography one-on-one, they know when you're doing a picture, you can take a pencil and stuff like that, and if you don't want that to come, that person's face to come out, all you got to do is go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth while you're doing the photo imaging. And I knew that because I had that class in college. So I knew what they had did. Phil, did you get any indication or ever see when they were showing you the murder book or any of that stuff of this photograph that Gene is talking about? Yes, and it does exist because myself and the other agents saw it in the murder book. And that's when we went back to my bosses because we couldn't make any copies or do it, take any pictures or anything like that. And we explained to my bosses what happened. And then we went back again to take a look at the murder book. And the pictures were gone. And it's pretty obvious. It's like I explained, you know, it's like if you have a photo album of like, uh, you know, pictures from the third grade that your mom put together or something like that. And there's like four pictures on page and you keep flipping the pages. And then suddenly you see a couple of blank spots where it was obvious pictures would have been, and those pictures are no longer there, and we noticed that. Uh, that's when my bosses, I wrote up a document, my bosses signed it, we sent it over to LAPD and to specifically Detective Katz, saying we not only want to see all the photos um, of your murder book, but specifically the photo that was shown Big Gene where he was standing next to who we believe is Amir Muhammad outside of Puffy's car when, uh, uh, when Big Gene brandished his gun and that um, Amir Muhammad, who we believe was Amir Muhammad, that his face was blurred out. And they stated that that photo doesn't exist. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. We've seen it, guys. Come on. And to this day, I mean, they just, they just denied that they had that photo. It's, well, it's, it's ridiculous. He wasn't, ridiculous. He, he wasn't exactly next to me. He was about seven feet or eight yeah, feet. Yeah, but, you know but, but you know, right, you know right. And, and he was a little bit further from Puff Car because I wasn't going to let him get that close. When they told me they was going to come back and I never heard from them, Phil, yo, I was scared as hell. 
And here, here's the thing, Don, is because, again, everything that Gene is saying right now is 100% true today. It's, a, it's 100% true what he told me 17 years ago, and it's 100% true what he told the LAPD because the LAPD documented that. And I, and I had, there's a copy of that document in the FBI files. But, so for them to even deny that they even showed that photo, it's, it's beyond embarrassing. It's just ridiculous. These things are documented. And, and like, like Big Gene was just saying, for, you know, A1 number LAPD detective to dispute this or to say that Gene had some eye-fucking contest with his Muslim and that's what caused the confrontation, no, it's not. That's the shooter. Yeah, I think the thing that uh, and maybe both of you can can give me your perspective on this, right? So just so I'm clear, Gene, and I and I know you know. Listen, I'll say his name. I know we we all have our opinions. Did did Greg did Greg Kading come to you as a detective, and did he interview you? Not at all. Never. Never. Never once came to interview you. No, he never came to interview me. Crazy. How, Phil, as an investigator, you're an investigator, how does somebody be tasked to look to relook into the murder and there's an eyewitness who has existed for years, so he doesn't go and talk to the eyewitness, then he makes a documentary film where he discounts what Gene has said to date, but he never went and talked to him. And secondarily to that, he investigated a case where he never had the files of all of this other stuff because the LAPD never gave it to him, yet he continually got come, like says these things in a public forum. I, I'm confused, and maybe Don, you guys can explain this to me. Don, it don't fit his narrative. Exactly. It doesn't fit his narrative. You know, if if he <laughs> interviews me and put that into record, you understand, that exists. And then he has to account for that being in the record. And why didn't why didn't you account for eyewitness that put this guy at the scene? Why didn't you account for little C saying right after shooting it was a Muslim who did it? So number one A grade one detective, he did what he wanted to do and he said it <laughs> when he was talking to somebody that wanted to show. After I cleared the, the, the thing for the LAPD, they had no use for me no more. They had no use for it. Hey, I, I got a question, too, because I, I, I have not watched, um, and nor do I ever have any attention to, because it's just a fictional TV series or as far as I'm concerned. But did, did Greg Kading ever, like, interview um, G-Money or uh, Lil C's or anything, anybody of those, any of the other guys that were I, right I, there in your entourage? I can't, I can't answer that. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what I don't what I don't understand, Don, is is and, and again, I'm I'm not in the um, you know the TV industry, but whoever the executives or the people that that produce or are going to produce some type of TV series that's based on a true event, how can you not do your due diligence? So this isn't I'm I'm, I'm not saying this just isn't on great Katie, but who who are the executives who need to do their due diligence? and all their checks to, to, to verify that this stuff is either true or not true or to actually corroborate things on their own. It's kind of like when you uh, interviewed Brad Furman, you know, the director of City of Lies, where he said, 
you know, they went out and they had to do their due diligence and corroborated things and track people down. How did that not happen for this TV series when the number one witness, Big Gene, was right there and, and they never talked to him? I, it's, it's mind-blowing to me that, that they wouldn't follow up on something like that and yet go ahead and produce a TV series or documentary and whatever it's just it's just not factually correct it's embarrassing yeah i think i think sadly enough if you look at the series of events what basically transpired is that up until you deciding to talk greg caden could get away with bad mouthing russ pool and there was nobody to support russ pool I, th- I think you can make the argument that Randall Sullivan supported Russ Poole, but Randall Sullivan is a journalist. So then what you have is this massive lag in time that ultimately we then get to when you decide to finally tell a story. And they can't attack your character. They, I think they could attack Russ Poole's character because at some point there was a narrative of the detective with the storage space who's gone off the deep end. They can't say that about you. So for the very first time in a period of 10 years, there's a narrative that you can't discredit sad, for Greg Kading. It's sad because he got away with it and and perpetrated a scam of Hollywood, a scam of whoever he did the documentary with, a scam of whoever he printed the book with. And so, unfortunately, it is what it is for us to land here today. And again, I challenge, you know, anyone to to give an alternative narrative to what you know, we've presented here in oh, close to 20 episodes of the dossier of, of evidence of other people speaking, and more importantly, you going on the record. And obviously, we can go on for days about that. But I have to ask Phil, because if I don't ask Phil this, my friend Charlie out there in North Carolina, he's going to be so mad at me, man. Phil, <laughs> okay. You guys, you guys are the FBI. You guys couldn't get all those sealed records, all those things open up through the courts or whatever like that, all that paperwork that they had, y'all, y'all couldn't get that? Well, no, here's the interesting part, is when the LAPD doesn't disclose that they have all those documents, and those documents are then hidden away in some files, we, we don't know what we don't know. And even to this day, who's to say what else is being hidden in the bottom of a drawer and I'm not saying there is, but from what I understand, there's a likelihood. But then once those documents finally do come out, but they are under seal, we have no access to them. We have, I hate to say it, but there's, there's no way that we can get our hands on that. And, and here's the sad thing. And understand, I don't have anything against the LAPD. I have something against certain people at the LAPD. But I have a lot of friends that work there. I had a good working relationship with them. And unfortunately, there's always a couple bad apples that uh, kind of you know, ruin it for everybody. But because of the working relationship the FBI has with the LAPD, it's not like if I have to go to a, a company and I need to subpoena a bunch of records. We try to be, you know, do the professional courtesy 
and explain to them, hey, these are the kind of documents that we believe are out there. Can you provide those to us? And understand, from the very beginning, Gene, I, I put out an olive branch to that robbery homicide division and Steve Katz. I cannot tell you how many times I asked them if they wanted to be part of the FBI's investigation. We wanted to look into things together, and they didn't want anything to do with it after they took off the two detectives because they knew that they were going to have to to ruin this case and obstruct it. Otherwise, it was going to be made. And so a lot of it, some of the things that I asked for, they would not provide, such as the photo of of you and uh, Amir outside the Peterson uh, near Puffy's car. I mean, it's documented that that photo exists. It's documented that me and another agent saw that photo. And it's documented that my bosses signed off on a letter specifically sent to certain people at LAPD, including Detective Katz, requesting that we see that photo. They respond, that photo does not exist. What do you do at that point? You got to just shake your head and just go, what the hell are we dealing with here? And it's not like we're just trying to say, hey, I gotcha. And, and, and slam the LAPD on something, it's, look, we, my bosses signed off and opened up this case. The FBI is doing their job. The FBI has reached out to the LAPD detectives to be part of this case, and they decide they don't want to be then. And so, you know, if they're not going to hand over these documents, uh, you're kind of stuck. And, again, some of the documents that I believe are out there um, that we've never seen I don't know if we're ever going to see him unless somebody else decides to open up the case. And I think, Gene, just to add to Phil, what you have to understand and is very important, and and we're trying to get Perry Sanders to come and talk to us about questions like you just asked. Even, for example, with the civil trial, At a certain point, what the LAPD really did is they went to the federal judge and they said to the federal judge, hey, we have new information and this is now an active murder investigation. Now, under that premise, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, the minute they tell the federal judge this is still an active murder investigation, that then allows them to control what Perry Sanders could see, what the Wallace family could see, what could be brought into court, and what could be buried in what Randall Sullivan likes to refer as to like a safety deposit box somewhere in downtown Los Angeles. Correct. And the, un- and I- and the unfortunate, I guess it's both fortunate and unfortunate, is the fortunate thing is, is there is no statute of limitations on a murder. The unfortunate thing is, is because of that, the LAPD can say, hey, this is an ongoing investigation. Uh, we should not have to hand over this particular evidence or these particular leads because we're still investigating it. And if we do turn this stuff over, it's going to impede or hamper our investigation. And the judge bought off on that. So basically, they have an endless amount of time to hold on to these documents or to hide these documents from ever coming to light, which means, I mean, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, does that mean this is still going to be an 
an open, ongoing murder investigation? Well, I guess so, if they're going to continue to hide those documents. That's the ridiculous thing about it. Hey, Gene, what, after all this time, still surprises you about this story enough for you to to still want to talk about it, for people's interest in it, what drives you to still talk about it? Well, the fact that there were there were eyewitness deaths. You know, Lucy saw the shooter. I put the shooter there at that position. Put the I put the shooter there. Lucy be the guy who's taking the shots and everything. So for people to come up with this coochie narrative and all this other bull crap, and they still believe that when eyewitnesses, because when you're doing an investigation, you the most important statement that is made is the statement that they make that night. It's the statement that they make right there at the scene. You know, and you have to you have to go with that statement that is made. You know, when we're doing investigation. So when Lil C said it's a Muslim, and then I say blue suit, what you call like that? You you run with that. It, it used to be a story that I used to hear. People are ready to hear the bullshit more so than they do the truth. So, you know how people are just coming on here and they running with the bullshit instead of listening to the truth. And it, and it's good that still who is a decorated FBI agent, you know what I'm saying? You know, he didn't have to come out. He could have kept quiet, you understand? Uh, but because he wasn't allowed to do his job just like Russell Poole, you understand? And he has the paperwork. He has the documentation. He has everything to put on the table to show you this is what we tried to do to find Big's killer. And I wasn't allowed to do that. So what keeps me on and keeps me going is this, is that one day that something is going to hit, somebody's going to say something, and they're going to say, yo, listen to me. But I want those people who was there to come out and say, yo, Gene was right. Gene told us at Andre Harrell house that guys was coming to kill us. You understand? Lucille just said something lightly like that. A couple of people are going to come out and they're going to tell the truth. And, I'll, you know, I'll wait on that. And, Phil, I, I do have a question for you that I don't think I've ever asked you. What would be preventing the LAPD to charge, if the evidence was there, the alleged shooter in Amir Muhammad and not... I guess, include the Mac or the Perez or how it all came about? Well, the one thing is, is there is, and this is everybody that's ever looked at this case has always said the same thing. There is no way in hell one person pulled this off, period. And, and there, without question, that's correct. In fact, there were two, I mean, Gene even told me there were, there were two cars set up. So depending on which way the, the, the caravan that had Puff and Iggy in it, Whichever way they turned, there was going to be a car that was going to be there that had a shooter uh, that was going to be able to take out, you know, whether it be Puff or whether it be Biggie. So right there it tells you there was more than one shooter. But there is no way one person is going to be able to lie wait in a car and not have other people involved to make sure that police officers don't. I mean, understand, too, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gene, after Big was shot, and you guys take off and try to follow the shooter, um, 
you know, going over 100 miles an hour on the freeway, you lose them, and then you come back, there's still no police officers there yet. And you guys decide, oh, you know what, let's take them to uh, Cedar sinai I know you guys knew how to get there. Where, where are the police officers? And I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at LAPD here. I'm pointing the finger at anybody. Who, who was handling the security for the actual museum? There had to be police officers there. There's no way in hell you are going to have that level of celebrities, both athletes that were there, um, entertainers that were there. I mean, there were, there were so many celebrities there that they're not only going to have their personal security, which is a lot of times off-duty officers, but you're also going to have security there that's supplied for the Peterson, as well as when you have a big event like that in a big city like whatever, Los Angeles, New York, wherever, you are going to have a ton of police officers, both uniformed to deter people from doing anything, as well as, say, in suits to where they can almost like, you know, fit in with the crowd, be undercover, or you know, be like the personal bodyguard for somebody, kind of like what, what, what Big Gene was. But to have no police officers show up there goes to tell you there had to be a concerted effort by more than just the shooter to try to orchestrate this. And that's where people need to understand how the Rampart case worked, how the Paul Merrill's case worked, how the David McBank robbery worked. There were multiple people, multiple officers, radios were used, tactics were used, cars were used to be able to orchestrate those, those crimes just like it was orchestrated to, uh, to create the shooting of Biggie. And one person could not do it. So even though if you were to arrest the shooter, if you want to say Amir Muhammad, there's still so many other people. And if you're going to go ahead and arrest one person, that person's going to start talking. They're not going to take the fall for everyone. Guaranteed. And Gene, that night when it all happened, obviously the adrenaline and your, your, you're doing what you're doing. When you think back on it now, was it odd to you that at that event or when this transpired that there was just absolutely no police that, as you said, they stopped the car, they got out, they were standing there, they were yelling, that no officers responded at all? When we got back uh, to the scene, you know, when you watch the uh, the television or L.A., even uh, in L.A., you always see that when there's a shooting, there's a situation, the helicopters will be in the air. You know what I'm saying? There were no helicopters in the air. There were no police on our side of the venue. What I heard was is that somebody had did a shooting on the other side of the venue. You understand? And there were ambulances and there were police all over there. Nobody ever came back to that side. We didn't do 100 because we had that government chip car fill, and every time okay. we tried to get up to 100, <laughs> it would go all the way back down to 90. So, gotcha. Uh, uh, so... We could we, we we was never going to catch it, and then um, when we got back, Holy still wasn't there. I walked in the middle of the Peterson, and that's when I heard DJ Quick. He said, "Yo, he was on the cell phone. Yo, I think they they got some one of them bad boy niggas. They said they was going to get him." And then I'm walking towards him, and Paul runs down. Say, "Yo, Gene, come on, we leave it. We take him back to the hospital," and he's grabbing at me. And I said, okay. So we we go back up to the I go back up to the car, 
And Kenny said, they asked Kenny, you know where the hospital was? He said, yeah, we didn't know it was a hospital like two blocks away. You know, and then when Lil C said that Kenny was dodging through, you know, traffic and everything like that now and was flying and stuff like that, he was trying to go as fast as he could. But our driver was cursing and said, I wish I knew where the hospital was because Kenny was going too slow. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we didn't even know where the hospital was at. And it seemed like Kenny didn't know where the hospital was at. I guess in closing here, Gene, is there any questions, and you can ask as many as you want, of Phil, of his investigation? And Phil, I, I pose that to you too. Is it true that, because this, this has been said, that because of big status and what it would have it would crippled the city, him being a gangster rapper and everything like that, that there were forces that wouldn't allow them to get to the truth that was played? What I can say to that is, um, and I stated it, you know, earlier on, is I was contacted by one of the attorneys um, for the city of Los Angeles, and they told me it was at the end of the day, and they said, hey, um, we need to talk with you because you've been put on a witness list by Perry Sanders and we cannot have you testify. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't know about any witness list or anything like that. And they said, well, yeah, um, prior to the trial starting, one of the requirements is, is all the attorneys, they have to both on the plaintiff and defendant side, you know, they have to provide a witness list. And Perry Sanders provided you um, as one of the witnesses they plan on calling. And we cannot have you testify. And I'm like, I, this is the first I've heard of it. They go, well, we need to talk to your bosses. And I said, okay, when do you, when do you want to meet? They go, we'll be at your office tomorrow morning. Well, that's, first of all, they don't usually come to the FBI office. And to do it that quickly, it was obviously a big deal. So I go ahead and I set up a meeting. I had all my bosses there. And that's where, and it's documented, like I stated before, point blank, they say, if Agent Carson were to testify, we stand a 50-50 chance of losing a $500 million, $600 million civil lawsuit, and we can't afford to have that happen. And the FBI said, okay. And they, the FBI, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't make it any determination at that point, but the case never went to trial, so it kind of got left at that. But just the fact that, that the city attorney's office was trying to squash me testifying and some of the other things that the city attorney's office uh, tried to do to, uh, to discredit me by uh, making up these false narratives and false ruses that ended up getting the lead city attorney on this case fired and taken off the case because he was going to get sued by me and the FBI. He, he gets yanked off because he even admitted under oath that the reason they did some of the things that they did was to try to, where they could discredit me if I were to be on the witness stand saying that, you know what, he didn't follow through on certain investigative leads because we tried to get him to do certain things and they were going to try to use that to discredit me. They even admitted under oath that they made up those false lies and it cost the lead city attorney uh, his job on the case. They, they had a lot at stake. Gene, this is coming after um, the whole consent decree from the Rampart situation. I mean, that, that case, what did it cost them? Like $100 million that they ended up paying out and paying off uh, all, the, all the people that got um, prosecuted that involved Rafael Perez's testimony. Once he was a disgraced officer, 
they pretty much had to let all those people go, let them walk free, and then they also had to pay off a bunch of civil suits because of that. So if if that is going to cost them $100 million, their number was it was this was going to cost them five to six hundred million dollars. That's not my number. That's what they told us. Well, Phil, I, I want to personally thank you, man, and uh, and I appreciate what you've done, man. You made my life so much easier as far as coming out and letting people know that I stood, I stood as a man, and I fought this battle, and I was fighting this battle by myself. I was letting everybody know no matter what and no matter who, what I saw and what I witnessed that night. And I truly appreciate you coming out, man, and letting the public know that I was a man of my word and I was true to my word. Thanks, guys. This was this was amazing to have you both on the phone at the same time. If there's any other follow-up, uh, I'll, get in, I'll get in touch with both of you, all right? Thank you. 